Hey guys, thanks for tuning in to episode 35 of Sheer Crime. I'm Amy. And I'm Kenzie. And today we are covering the Netflix documentary, Amanda Knox. When most people think about studying abroad, they picture faraway lands, gorgeous architecture, delicious food, and an experience they may not have thought possible. Being a young adult and on an adventure is both alluring and exciting, but not all European studies turn out to be what you'd want them to. Amanda Knox set off for Italy in 2007 with a twinkle in her eye and a thirst for something new. Little did she know that soon her name would be on the tongues of people from all over the world in connection with the brutal murder of her English housemate, Meredith Kircher. The Italian police quickly decided Amanda and her new Italian love interest, Raphael, were responsible for killing the young co-ed in some kind of sex game gone wrong. But Foxy Noxy wouldn't go down without a fair trial, and with the entire world against her, it wasn't going to be easy. two weeks and that's very odd we have not done that in a really long time no so it seems weird and i was so excited to come over today i know (laughs) and finally record again (laughs) i know me too and i don't know about you but even though we had two weeks i still only finished note taking last night i did too what has been keeping you (laughs) occupied (laughs) 10 p.m i got done doing our notes yesterday two weeks to do this. (laughs) I think with the longer time, we are procrastinating. Yes, we are. Yep. Longer. Yes. But we got it done. We did. And we were even able to record a quick TikTok today. Yes. Finally. uh, Finally. We've been wanting to do TikToks. I can't tell you how badly I want to keep posting on TikTok. My daughter fucking trolls me in the comments (laughs) on every one I post. I'm like, could you just not? Like, it's called keep scrolling. (laughs) Just keep scrolling. Oh my gosh, I love it. Oh, it's the worst. (laughs) She is the worst. I love you, Kaylin, but you're a dick. (laughs) But yes, I am so glad to be back here. Me too. Recording. This is a documentary that I watched a few years ago, so I kind of forgot about it. Honestly, I don't know if I've ever seen the documentary. I think this was the first time for me through, and I don't even know if I truly knew the story, like all the details. I knew the basis of it and what happened, but I did not know the details. So I was really, really intrigued. This one kept me really interested the whole time. Yeah, for me, Amanda Knox, like that name was so infamous. But again, I didn't exactly know what had gone on before I watched this. To me, it was like Casey Anthony, Amanda Knox. Those were two names that were just like big at that time without a whole lot of coverage on this one, I feel like. Right. So yeah, I'm glad that we were able to do it. Before we get started, why don't you tell me what you brought over to drink? So today we really were getting low in our fridge outside. So I brought over a Vizzy strawberry kiwi. Oh, okay. We had a bunch of randoms, like just one-off 
yeah. things left over. And I was yeah. like, this one looks pretty good. And it's really hot outside. So I was like, yeah, this will be tasty. Oh, yeah, that's true. I have uh, not stepped outside in all it's, day. It's hot. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm not interested. Yeah. I am eight months pregnant. It's not happening. Over it. No. I, it's over it. <laughs> I'm over it. <laughs> We're all over it. Ugh. And what are you what are you drinking, Amy? So at the last minute. I decided to go for my last can of mini Sprite. Love it. Because, well, I have the LaCroix up upstairs in the fridge, chilling, just waiting. It's been waiting for two weeks. Yeah, yeah. But I'm just not feeling it today. Oh, I know. Baby wants sugar. That'll be the perfect thing for baby. So this is what's happening. Perfect. Well, should we pop our tops? We should. All right. Perfection. Did you literally see me close my eyes because I thought it was going to shoot yep. me in the face? <laughs> Happy Thursday. Happy Thursday. Woo. Ooh, so good. For real. That was really tasty. All right. Well, without further ado, let's get started. Why don't you lead us into this documentary? Perfect. So this is the Netflix documentary. It's just called Amanda Knox. This was released back in 2016. The documentary starts with Amanda Knox. She's sitting in like an interview space by herself. It's very kind of like, not spooky-ish. It's moody. But it's, I like it. I like the vibe that it's thrown out there. Oh, yeah. And so we hear from her and she states that some people believe in her innocence and some do not. But if she was guilty, she is the ultimate person to fear because she wouldn't be the obvious suspect, right? You'd automatically think it'd be a guy or a man that would do something like this. Right. But on the other hand, if she is innocent, then anyone is vulnerable to something like this. And she is quoted by saying, either I'm a psychopath in sheep's clothing or I am you. Yeah. Wow. I know. Like goosebumps, girl. Great intro. I loved it. I was hooked. Shit. Who wrote this for her? Was she was just off the cusp and she's just... Saying this shit, I'm like, I love this. This is great. I think it was because she's pretty smart. Yes. Yeah, I was really happy to find out that this wasn't just a story about her. Right. But it's her also telling the story. It is her telling her own story. And Raphael, and we get to hear from a lot of different people, which is awesome. It was, it's refreshing. It was very different. We don't see a lot of documentaries that are like this. No. In the point of view of the suspect. Right. So it was really awesome. If you haven't watched it, definitely watch it. We cut to Seattle, Washington in 2016. We're back with Amanda, and she's telling us that before Italy, she lived a happy and normal life. She was just a quirky, silly, normal girl. She knew she was different, but wasn't really concerned. Everyone has kind of their own things about them that make them a little different. And she knew that at some point she would find her way in life. She had felt behind in college a bit because she wasn't really like a partier. She never really tried to get out of her comfort zone. She didn't do things to kind of broaden who she could be at some point. And so she felt that she needed to try something new to, quote, become an adult. She loved the history of Italy and thought she would really be able to blossom while studying abroad there. And we see, like, they're showing us these pictures of Perugia, Italy, and it is gorgeous. Oh, my gosh. Seriously, it's so picturesque. Like, we do not have buildings or cobblestone or things like that 
in America. So seeing that is just like, oh, it made me want a glass of wine and some really good cheese. Yes. Or bread or pasta. Just pasta or pizza. (laughs) All the gelato. Yes. (laughs) Amanda goes on to tell us that the first few weeks she just discovered this new city that she was living in. She really wanted to engulf herself in everything that the city had to offer. And I may be saying it wrong. I don't know if it's Perugia, Perugia. I don't know. We might we might say things wrong in this documentary. Neither so. one of us know Italian. No, and don't come for us. I'm sorry. No, because honestly, <laughs> we don't care. Right. <laughs> so she was living with an Italian woman and a few British women who were all around her age and really sophisticated. Like, they had already been out in the world. They really knew who they were. So they were different than Amanda. I feel like Europeans in general are like yes. that. Yep. I, I totally think that they're just more cultured. They're, Absolutely. I feel like smarter. I don't know if that's the right word to say. No, that's 100% it. We I feel are like <laughs> dumbasses over here. Well, a lot of them know multiple languages. Multiple languages. None of us do. No. <laughs> no. When Amanda speaks in Italian in this documentary, oh I'm always God. like floored. Me I'm too. like, I know pig Latin. That's about as far as I know. I mean, just the way that she can. I mean, you can tell she's American when she talks English. Oh, totally. But she can immediately switch it over and sound completely Italian. It's mind blowing to me. And yet I bet anybody who is Italian listening to this. Yeah. Is probably like her accent is trash. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) (laughs) They they're not accepting that. No. No. They had all lived in this beautiful house overlooking this valley. She really, really enjoyed it. She expected that school was going to be tough, but it actually was the complete opposite for her. And so she figured it would be best that she got a job because she thought she'd be doing schoolwork for hours on end. Well, it didn't end up happening. She had all this extra time. She's like, well, I might as well make some money while I can. Well, yeah. Another thing that Europe has on us is the fact that they understand work-life balance a hell of a lot better oh, for sure. than Americans do. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we're, we're a little ass backwards over here. A little? Little. There's a lot of ass. A lot. And yeah. it's all backwards. <laughs> There's a lot of ass and it's all backwards. <laughs> <laughs> now, she tells us that Patrick Lamumba was the owner of this new bar in town, and he decided to hire Amanda, hoping it would bring in some new customers. Because, again, she really did stand out. She was American. Again, her accent was not the same as everyone else's. I think you do stick out like a sore thumb when you're in a different country to all the locals. It's it's not the same. In Seattle, she was just a cute girl. But in Italy, she was a beautiful, blonde American girl. So it gave her, I think, a sense of confidence that she's never had before because men didn't look at her that way here, you know, and Maybe she felt more weird in America than she did in Italy. You know, maybe it just, it was just a different way of life there. Yeah. Beauty standards are different. All that. Yeah. We're now one week before the murder. We meet Rafael Solicito, and he had went into this classical music concert and found this pretty girl sitting alone. They eventually locked eyes, and she smiled at him. And he almost like couldn't believe that she was smiling at him. He thought someone was like behind him that she was actually looking at. Even though he was a pretty shy person, since they had this little bit of attraction going on, he decided to go start chatting with her. He immediately knew that she was an American when he walked up to her. And 
They ended up going out together and he was showing her the beautiful views of the city. Raphael could feel the romance between them right away and decided to lean in and give her a kiss. Now, this is all happening in the same day. Okay, this is not like a week later. I can't judge. I kiss on the first date. No, (laughs) same. But (laughs) it's just so everyone's aware. This isn't like a week later. No, no, no. This this is is happening fast. All at once. This is happening probably within the first hour or two. Like, this is happening very quickly. Yeah. I mean, you got to find out. Do Italians also French kiss? (laughs) Right. Amanda said, compared to other guys she knew, he was super sweet and kind, and she felt that same romance in the air. So they were both having these mutual feelings for each other. Raphael says that the night went so well that they ended up going home together. And he wanted to smoke a joint, but something else happened instead. And we can kind of all guess what that was. I mean, I would have smoked the joint first and then (laughs) followed it up with a happy ending. So things happened very quickly between Amanda and Raphael. Amanda says to us that she had never been in love before. So this was a whole new experience. And they were spending every moment that they could together. They were going on walks, getting pizza. I mean, anything that they could do together, they were doing. Mind you, their entire relationship was a week. That's it. No more than that. Their whole entire relationship was just one week. And I remember how salacious this case was about Amanda Max's boyfriend and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, they were so lovey-dovey with each other. I always had the assumption that they were together for a long time, right? Like a year or two, one week, you guys, they were together before all of this shit hit the fan. Yeah. Which also then when we find out about all of the salaciousness around their relationship, makes sense why they were so handsy with each other. Right. They were brand new. Yep. Remember that? Like, can you remember that? Those butterflies in your stomach, like. Can't keep your hands off each other. Yep. I totally get that. Yeah. So it caught me off guard because I I did not realize that they literally had only been together one week. We're now at November 2nd, 2007. And we're hearing a news report coming into us in Italian, which, of course, like anybody, I have my closed captioning on so that I can actually hear what they're saying. (laughs) Exactly. And what we see is good evening from the Umbria TV news, which opens with sad news. Meredith Kircher, an English 22 year old, was found dead in her house on Via della Pregola. Everything discovered so far suggests she's been murdered. Of course, I just butchered that little bit of Italian that I'm was I'm telling there. you, it's going to happen throughout the whole episode. I, I don't literally know almost just vomited <laughs> because I could not <laughs> believe that I wrote that in there and did not somehow let myself know ahead of time. We next meet Giuliano Mignini. He's the lead prosecutor in this case against Amanda Knox. He says that the crime scene is a memory he'll never forget. There was blood everywhere. He says that Meredith's naked body had been covered by a blanket or a comforter, and that's how they found her. There were many signs that she'd been violently held down, mostly by her arms. There was an extremely deep gash or wound across her throat. And outside, he remembers seeing two young people comforting each other with 
much affection, like kissing, holding, which seemed very inappropriate for that moment. To which I wrote, why does Raphael look like Harry Potter? Seriously. He looks just like Harry Potter. (laughs) He was wearing the scarf and everything. The scarf and everything and the glasses and the like shaggy hair. I'm like, oh my God, you are so right. Oh my God, that's hilarious. (laughs) Expelliarmus, get us out of here. (laughs) Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh, that's good. That's good. (laughs) Oh my God. Where is Dumbledore? (laughs) Why did he let this happen to Harry? We're then seeing a bunch of clips of paparazzi shooting pictures of, you know, the crime scene outside the building, and then a bunch of pictures being taken while the body bag is being taken out of the house. And police, you can hear, are begging them to stop, you know, be respectful. I mean, I'm just like, ew. But also, I mean, if I was a paparazzi, I'd be wanting to get those shots, too. I mean, they should be doing more, though, to, like, hide that, right? Yeah, they I, seemed very, like, just nonchalant. Yeah, no big deal. I mean, yeah. we're just taking her dead body out. And, you know, the bag might open up, so people might be able to see something. It's like, okay. God forbid they st- Step on a cobblestone wrong yeah. and the body falls. Yeah, because at one point I think like they had to stop, set her down and like cover or something. And it's like, what the hell is going on here? Why? why okay, if you have a bit, shouldn't it zip or something? Like make sure it's fully closed just so like people can't see her in that state because no one wants to see that kind of stuff. Well, and it's you know? 2007. Come on. Yeah. No. Come on. Get your zippers are already a thing. Get your shit together. Get your shit together. We meet Nick Pisa, and he's a freelance journalist for the Daily Mail. He says that a murder always gets people going. You know, here's me raising my hand like, yep, that's totally me. Well, there's so much curiosity. People want to know all the details of what happened, why it happened, what led to it. I mean, people want answers. How crazy was the person who did it? exactly. He says that this was a particularly gruesome murder on a beautiful hilltop town. I mean... Here's this young woman with her throat slit, semi-naked, blood everywhere. And it was the first time he'd covered a case in Perugia, and he had to get to the scene and report on the facts. He said that authorities were under a ton of pressure. I mean, they found themselves on this international media map, and basically they want to prove that they could handle something of this magnitude Because everybody's watching. Well, and again, it's the public is out crying to them, like, find out who did this. Like, is there still someone on the loose that could be doing this to other people and continue doing this on a murderous rampage? How do you know that yet? And so I think that's, especially in this type of like smaller town, I don't think they were equipped or prepared for something like this to happen. Absolutely not. So it was overwhelming for them. Their their anxiety was probably through the roof. Like, holy shit. We don't have time. Like, we have to find someone now. Right. We see some clips of Meredith Kircher's family stepping off of a plane. And then we hear a little bit from Meredith's sister, Stephanie Kircher, during like a press conference. She says that nothing can really prepare you for that kind of news and that they were all feeling utterly devastated. And she's telling us that Meredith really touched everyone that she met with her infectious, upbeat personality her smile, and her sense of humor. 
again, things that would never be said about us. And, you know, I don't want to talk bad about victims of crimes, but I feel like it's the same, like, five words that are used, like, every single time. And I get it. I mean, you want people to remember your sibling, your spouse, your best friend, whoever it is to, you want people to remember them in the best light possible. Right. Of course. But again, that's not me. That's not you. (laughs) No. Infectious laugh. Don't (laughs) Okay. I'll take the sense of humor. There we go. Yes. But even that is really for like a targeted audience (laughs) because a lot of the things that I say are just plain. I lost the word. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. Your face. I immediately went. Okay, that jaw dropping. A lot of the things I say are just jaw dropping things people shouldn't fucking say out loud. And I say them. Yeah. Because I, it's completely inappropriate to say at the time. <laughs> I literally can't help myself. It's okay, Amy. That's why we love you. <laughs> Thank God somebody <laughs> does. Giliano comes back and says that Meredith's mother arrived and immediately asked to see her daughter. He remembered her being absorbed in silence, just being very quiet through the whole thing. And she didn't speak at the press conference from what we see. Yeah. She was very quiet and kind of let her daughter take the lead from what it looked like. But she then asks if she could lean down and give Meredith a kiss. Giliano says that being a father of four girls himself, he completely understood the immense pain that she must have been feeling. And as a Catholic, He struggled with being able to reconcile two things, that God runs the world while man has free will, and we must be held responsible for our actions. Right. So he knows he needs to figure out what happened to this girl. Nick comes back and says that the place was covered in journalists. He says everyone's camped outside the mortuary waiting for the autopsy results from the pathologist. He was allowed to go in and report on the facts. So he must have gotten some kind of, I don't know. I think he's another salesman. I think he's selling himself. I think he's a smooth talker. You can tell. And he thinks highly of himself. Not as much as Giliano does. No, they both do. And I'm like, man, I mean, you guys are just tooting your horn whenever you can. I'm like, shit, what is going on here? (laughs) They, yes, yes. He, he smooth talked his way in there for sure. He must have, because he was one of the only ones that was allowed in. Right. And he says that post-mortem concluded there had been evidence of some sexual interference with Meredith's body. So there had been traces of male DNA found inside of her. There were little nicks in her chin as if she'd been taunted or tortured, maybe by like a knife kind of, you know, right under her chin to keep her maybe looking into the eyes of whoever's doing this. That's what I pictured when he mentioned that. That sounds horrible. Can you imagine being tortured like that? I mean, even when I was younger, my brothers would like sit and do the finger thing on the chest, you know? Yeah. And it hurts after like five seconds. Yeah. And it's painful. You know, you're first laughing, ha ha, giggly. Then you're like, oh my God, God, stop. It's horrible. <laughs> but can you imagine with a sharp object and like yeah. in your throat and in your, oh God, that's horrible. It's just horrible to think about. At that point, police began saying that they thought it was a group crime, like some type of sex game gone wrong. This made headlines all over the world. Nick remembers what it was like to see his name on the front page 
under a story of that magnitude and how unbelievable it was. I mean, I can't imagine what that would feel like for somebody who wrote that. I get it. But on the other hand, the way he was smiling about it and kind of chuckling about it pissed me the fuck off. I'm like, you're a toolbox, dude. Like, this girl died. She was tortured and died. And you're like, oh, yay, I'm going to get a raise. I'm I'm getting my name on all the papers and blah, blah. And I'm like, ew, ew. He rubbed me the wrong way the whole time. He's just icky. Really? Icky. I, I didn't like him. Nope. I don't I don't <laughs> like a lot of people. Cancel. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Cancel Nick Pisa. <laughs> Amanda comes back and tells us that she had been friends with Meredith for a few weeks. And really, that was it but was shocked at what had happened to her. She says that it was brutal, it made absolutely no sense, and it could have actually happened to her had she been home that night. But she was at Raphael's apartment. She tells us that they had watched Amelie, and in the middle of the movie, she got a text from Patrick Lamumba, her boss at the bar, Mm -hmm. saying that she did not have to come into work that night, and she was thrilled. I mean, been there. Yep. Totally get it. Yep. Those are the best damn text messages. Those are the best text messages. (laughs) So her and Raphael were able to finish the movie. They made dinner. She read to him from a German Harry Potter book. Go figure. (laughs) Literally. (laughs) I was like. She's reading a book about Harry. (laughs) To Harry. Harry. (laughs) And then eventually they made love and passed out. I mean, to me. Sounds like a wonderful fucking day. Yeah. (laughs) The next morning, she goes home and noticed immediately that the front door was open. She looked around the common area, you know, kitchen, living room. Everything seemed to be normal, and so did her bedroom. So she gets undressed, walks into the bathroom, and noticed some blood droplets in the sink. But again, nothing super alarming. I mean, it wasn't large droplets. It could have been from really anything. Okay. The door being open. Well, that would have freaked me. Okay, and the way that their house is located, it's like right on the damn street. Like the street is like right outside their front door almost. Wouldn't that tip you off? I wouldn't even walk in the damn house if I saw that the door was open. I think it's different over there. Oh my God. Hell no. I would be running the opposite way. Someone help. Something is wrong. There's no way the door would be open. I know. You know, that early in the morning. No one does that. No. Uh, I don't know. That was that was strange to me. I mean, wouldn't she go to her roommate's room and, like, knock and see if she's okay? Like, I don't know. That, that whole... And I think this is where a lot of the speculation against her came from. You're probably right. Because yeah. this is weird. This is a weird way to act because wouldn't she, as a female... And somebody who grew up in Washington... Right. The Pacific Northwest, where all the fucking serial killers come from... Right. I I mean, I don't know. I I just feel as a female, I would be terrified. Yeah. I would not want to go in there to see what's going on. No. That because that is just weird. Yeah. Doors don't just get left open. No. Especially front doors. Maybe a back screen door, you know, that might be open, but the actual door is still shut or something like that, but not the actual door. It might be unlocked. That's a different thing. Yeah. But if it's fucking open, go find help. Go fucking find, call someone, do not go in there. Do not go in. (laughs) So she finishes brushing her teeth and she decides to take a shower. 
As she's stepping out of the shower, she notices a much larger spot of blood on the bath mat. That would have caught my eye almost immediately. And it looked like a foot. Did you see that? Yeah. It was like the top. It was big. It was the top half of someone's foot. It had toes and it was the the top of someone's foot. And I'm. You scared the shit out of me just now. I totally was like. (laughs) (laughs) I thought someone was walking into the room. Oh, my God. And we're supposed to be here alone. Oh, my God. Oh, it's going to be a long episode. (laughs) Oh, I'm sweating. (laughs) Literally, can you imagine walking out after showering? You're naked. No, that's the worst time. You are naked and you see someone's footprint and blood on the bath mat. Right where you're about to step. And this is not where she freaks out. Okay. This is not where she freaks out yet. So, again, Odd, odd. That's odd, right? I mean, yeah, because she says that she just thought maybe somebody cut themselves. Nothing big enough to cause her any alarm. In all honesty, when I was looking at it, I kind of was like, okay, maybe, maybe she was high. If I was high and saw that, I'd be like, no, don't panic. It's probably not a big deal. Yeah. That's where I'm going to give her the benefit of the doubt. Okay, I'll I'll give her that too, because maybe that that could have been something that was hindering her reactions because some people get super paranoid and you can easily work yourself up while under the influence of marijuana right so in my mind i would try to downplay the whole thing to be like settle down you're high Mm -hmm. don't freak out it's not a big deal so then while blow drying her hair she looks over and noticed that there had been some feces left in the toilet which how did you not smell that I don't know. You can smell when somebody leaves a shit in your toilet and didn't flush it. Yeah. So I was like, okay. And she says that's what gave her the creeps. Like she wasn't alone in the house. A turd. (laughs) Okay. See, for me, that would not be weird. That wouldn't. That would have been the least weird thing about that entire situation. I I go into the bathroom to turds that have been sitting there for hours all the time with my kids. Same. Like, the kids just leave turds in the toilet all the time. They never flush. So that would not be weird. So, again, maybe maybe it's different. Obviously, they're young girls. They probably flush every time they go to the bathroom. Well, that's true. That would maybe set you off. But wouldn't the bloody footprint set you off? I don't don't know. That, That, to me, I don't know. But, again, we don't know what state she was in. I don't know. I don't know. I think I just would have done more. If I would have actually yeah. went in, I would have seen if Meredith was there. Right? right. You would go to her room. You'd see if she's actually in her room. But she didn't do that. No. So maybe they weren't that close. I don't know. I don't know. There's a lot to the story. There's we're, a lot. We're yeah. still at the beginning here. <laughs> yeah. So at that point, she feels like she wasn't alone in the house. So she leaves, goes back to Raphael and tells him about it. Raphael tells us that they went back to the house And he noticed how much of a mess it was. There was a broken window. He said that he felt that it was really surprising that Amanda was comfortable enough to shower there without anxiousness over the state of their home. Okay, that's what I'm saying. So she had to have been stoned. Maybe Italian weed is really good. I don't know. It just seemed right. Like he comes in, he immediately senses something's weird. And I think you almost get that like stand up the hair on the back of your neck type of feeling when something isn't right. Even if it's not going on anymore, 
You just get this you weird get that static feeling of something happening. Yes. Yes. There's yes. like that aura in the air. There's a disturbance. Something is going on. Yep. And there was a broken window. How did she miss that? Where was it? They didn't really specify where the broken window was. I don't right. know if it was on the back of the house or not where she came in. We weren't really sure, but there's like, holy shit. Like he knew immediately something was wrong. And she she goes in, doors open, no big deal. Front doors open, blood in the bathroom, no big deal. Turn in the toilet. Freak out. Time to leave. (laughs) So this is the point where Amanda tries to get into Meredith's room. The door was locked, which seemed to be unusual. So she knocked gently and called out to her, but there was no response. She asks Raphael to break into the room, not knowing if her roommate was in there or not, but just how strange the situation was at this point. She felt they needed to get in. They needed to get in and see the state of what's going on in her room, if she's even there. Right. So he attempts to kick it down twice, but no luck. Pull out your wand. (laughs) Call Hermione. She knows how to do this. And Ron. But they don't call Hermione. They call the police. The police get there and immediately kick the couple out of the house, break into Meredith's room, and report blood everywhere, and that Meredith was in there with her throat slit. That's how Amanda was notified that her roommate was dead. Giliano, the prosecutor, comes on and tells us that he has always had a passion for investigative work, and he really, really admired Sherlock Holmes as a kid. And he wondered why she had been covered with a blanket. That was kind of the first question he asked, is why is she covered with a blanket? His thought was typically female murderers will tend to cover the bodies of female victims. And I had to pose the question, is this real? Like, where did he get this information from? Or is this strictly his opinion? I honestly feel like they, he obviously is taking this from opinion. My thought, because most of the time, when you hear about somebody's body being covered up, it's usually because it was done and the person feels a bit of remorse over it. And a lot of times it's a guy. Like lovers. Like, Lovers. Yeah, like you you did it out of revenge or you were mad at them, but you feel bad because you, you now you don't want people to see their body in that state or something like that. Yeah, he says a couple of things where I'm like, where do you get yeah. that? Yeah, I, I was like, I've never seen a statistic like that. Like maybe, maybe a female would do that more than a male, but I but haven't heard that. Also, usually if a female is going to kill somebody, it's not so messy. Right. They'll try to do it a different way. Kill Poison. them with poisoning or, yep. yeah, yeah, pills or something. Or, like, knock them on the head with something that doesn't break open their head. Right. You know what I mean? Right. So that was just weird. And he needs to do a little yeah. research. And I think he needs to study American murderers because, well, we have a lot more of them, I feel like. <laughs> <laughs> yes. People be crazy over here. Yeah. And, I, yeah, like you said, I just feel like he's saying a lot of things based on his opinion, not on actual facts. Yeah. He thinks that a man would never do this type of action or think to do this type of action. I'm like, again, what? Why do you think that? Like, because a man would never think to cover <laughs> something up? Are you I don't kidding? Know. So weird. And he said that the break-in struck him the most because nothing was taken. And there was also no evidence that anyone tried to climb the wall. So they had this wall, like, below their house. It was very weird to explain because their house was, like, in this valley type of thing. 
It was, it was kind of almost like built into a hill. Yeah, it was It was interesting how it was. So he said that there was no evidence that someone had to, had climbed up the wall to get to their front door, I think is what he was referring to. His first thought was that it was a staged break-in. He figured that this would be a great way to throw off the investigation from looking close to home. And I didn't feel that. I don't feel like it looked like a staged break-in at all. No. Sometimes people just want to have sex with another person and rape them. It's not about taking their valuables or what they have. Sometimes that's all the motive they need. Or they get in and realize there are four college chicks who don't have valuables. Right. 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 So instead, (laughs) there's nothing there to take. Get something out of the deal. Right. We're at two days after the murder. Amanda comes on and says this was the first time she was brought back home since it had been closed off as a crime scene. And the investigators wanted her to go through all of the knives in their home to see if any of them were missing. And this is when everything really hit her and she just became hysterical. And again, I do not think you can base guilt off of people's emotions after a tragic event. Oh my God, no. And And not always. And Giuliano. Unless they're acting really guilty. I mean. Like Chris Watts. I think you, they're. You have to look at everything, right? And Giuliano really honed in on how she acted right after the murders. Immediately. And it's like, okay, but you also have to have evidence, right? You have to have evidence attached to that, not just your own feelings and opinions. That's not how it works. And he was really basing everything off of how he felt and how she was talking to him and interacting with him and the police in general. Well, in all honesty, if it was somebody I had not known that long, I wouldn't be hysterical I wouldn't be crying. Right. You it's know? shocking, but you it might be, not I might be, be more in shock at that point. Yeah. If it was my family or a best friend or something like that, right. that's when I would be hysterically right. responsive to it. Right. Now, Giuliano tells us that Amanda started hitting her hands on her ears. And he thinks that she did this because she was reliving the murder, the noises, the sounds, the screams. And this is when he started to suspect Amanda as the murderer. I I'm feel like, like he's just reaching oh literally for everything. I, every time he speaks, I'm like, none of that makes sense. Like, you cannot base this shit off of how you feel about someone. And that's all it was. It, it was all how yes, he felt. Because he was such a great prosecutor and he was so good at his job and he just knew how to find killers and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I'm already sick of your shit. You've been on the screen for like five minutes. I'm sick of your shit. Yeah. Can I also say the worst part about this documentary was that he spoke Italian. So the whole time I had to actually watch what he was saying (laughs) and I couldn't just like, you know, write down quickly because they're saying it. Yep. Yep. Son of a bitch. Yep. Now, three days after the murder, the police wiretap Amanda and Raphael's phones. And we hear her on the phone with a friend back home. And they start talking about Raphael. But then Amanda mentions that she had a horrible day being in the police station and was just wanting to cry at all times. Being in a police station is scary. Police in general give a lot of people fear, even if it's like, you're driving down the road and you pass a police officer. You get this instant dread like, oh, my God, how fast was I going? Am I going to get Oh, my God, over? how many drugs do I have stashed in my back seat <laughs> that I don't know about? Right. Is there a body back there, too? <laughs> like, how many laws have I broken in the last 30 seconds? Every time. Every so time. This type of a reaction from Amanda is totally normal. Totally normal. Like, she can cry because she's terrified right now. 
She knows that they're interrogating her and she doesn't really understand why because she was not a part of this shit. And she's in a foreign fucking country. Right. And while she does speak Italian, my guess is there's probably some things that she doesn't know. The dialect could be a little bit different than what she had learned. They could be using terms that she had never heard before because these are legal terms. Right. I would be freaking the fuck out too. Hell yeah. Now, Giuliano says that on the fifth day of the investigation, they had a break in the case. Raphael is called into the police station. Amanda had went with him, even though she was not asked to. Again, she has nobody else. And they're lovebirds. Like, she wants to be close to him. They're kind of in the same predicament right now. Of course she's going to want to come with him and be close to him. Right. Raphael tells us that Amanda just came for support and the police officers started being pretty rude to him and kept asking him what happened that night. So now they're already starting to insinuate that he was there, that he did this crime. And so I'm sure he's thinking, what the fuck? This is not what I thought it was going to be. You know, they probably just thought that he was kind of close to this girl since he was dating Amanda. Like maybe he had some extra insight, but no, they think he did it. Right. He knew that he had been at his apartment with Amanda that night, but they were not satisfied with that response. Every time they'd ask him the question about where he was, he kept giving them the answer of like, yeah, I was at my apartment with Amanda. This is what we did. His story never changed until he had to change it. They kept saying like, no, that's not what happened. No, that's not what happened. That's not, tell us what really happened. You know, what the fuck? This is the type of shit that's, that's, can be good and can be bad with the interrogations, oh, I think right? it's most likely bad. Yeah. In this case, they didn't have any fucking proof whatsoever None. that he was in that house. None. Had there been proof, I mean, like a camera showing him right. entering the property, right. leaving the property with blood all over him, right? then they could do that. But in this case, they don't know that. They is- just are wanting to hear one thing and he's not saying it. All speculation. 100%. At this point, they're getting more aggressive with him. And one officer told him that Amanda was a compulsive liar and was a stupid slut and a cow that didn't care about him. What? Wow. Fuck. That is so messed up. Like, I hope they got that shit on camera. I hope all these fucking interrogations were filmed. I don't know how it is in Italy. I was going to say, I bet it's probably somewhat more allowed. Oh, my God. It's so horrible. They call each other cunt over there like it's nothing. Oh my God. I bet stupid slut and cow was like almost a term of endearment. (laughs) Maybe. They were basically telling him that he was in a very bad situation. And that's when reality kind of hit him and things started to become unclear for him. Again, they're breaking him down. I'm sure this happened over hours and hours and hours of them telling him that that's not what happened that, that night. That's not what happened that night. Tell us what happened. And I think you almost get brainwashed a little bit oh, yeah. into thinking that what your original thought was wrong. Yeah. And you're like, am I misremembering something? He does smoke weed. Maybe he forgot, right? Maybe he doesn't really remember what happened, you know? It makes you start to rethink what you originally thought, and then you start to doubt yourself. Well, even think about it this way. How many times have your parents or somebody in your family told you a story over and over and over again that at some point you're like, 
was I there? Right. Is this a memory that I have? Or right. is this just because I've heard this story so many damn right. times? Right. It's the same type of thing. And yeah. when it's happening to you like all at one time and it's over hours and hours and hours, I think you do get a little bit of doubt in yourself. Oh, yeah. Giuliano goes on to say that Raphael changes his story at this point and distanced himself from Amanda. He tells police that he's lied to them, but only because Amanda told him to. He says that he was home, but Amanda was not with him and didn't come back to his house until 1 o'clock p.m. We hear from Amanda, and she says that the police were trying to prove that she left Raphael's house that night, so they wanted to take her phone. Okay, they're probably going to corroborate her story, see what she was texting and who she was talking to and all that stuff. Well, they pull up the text message that she had sent to her boss, Patrick, that said, we will see each other later. Have a good night. She explained that she was supposed to work that night, but Patrick had called to tell her that she didn't need to go in. But they thought the text meant that she made an appointment to go see someone that night, but she didn't remember doing that. And I was like, I'm like so confused. I think it's got to be lost in translation. So, yeah, you know how we'll say, see you later. And later could be a month. Right. Right. But in this text, they're looking at it very literally. See you later. Like, like later tonight. tonight. Yeah. Yeah. And. I was really confused when she was explaining that. I'm like, fuck does that even mean? But now that makes sense. It was just, they didn't understand the context of the text. Right. Cause it was very clear to me. Well, but maybe again, that's not something that they, maybe that's not how they speak over there. Either. Right. Right. So maybe even Patrick kind of looked at it and was like, huh? You know, but like, let it go because right. she's an American. Right. Right. Exactly. Now she started getting really frazzled and told them that she didn't know what the fuck was going on. And they thought she was telling them to fuck off again, the language barrier. And at one point they even hit her on the back of the head a few times to get her to remember her story. This is so fucked up on so many levels. I know. Oh my God. I hope to God she sued the shit out of them after she got home. I wonder. Oh my God. I would. Hell no. That kind of, that is not okay. Oh my God. That is brutality. That is, that is police brutality. But again, over there, that may not be police brutality. Right. Because oh, it's God, not leaving it's a mark. So messed up. I mean, you can slap someone upside the head and it's not going to leave a mark. Now it was at this point in the interrogation that she broke. She then started to have things pop into her head. Raphael's street in front of his apartment, her front door being open, her boss Patrick's leather coat and the sound of Meredith screaming. She assumed that this meant that she was remembering Patrick killing Meredith. Like, wow, to be in that state of mind and to not know. So crazy. So crazy. Giuliano was completely shocked. What she was saying made her an accomplice to murder. But he wondered why Raphael would lie. He decided to arrest all three of them, Amanda, Raphael, and Patrick Lamamba. The Perugian officials did a press conference stating how they were terribly saddened by Meredith's death, but were very pleased with the Perugian police for finding the killers in such a short amount of time. Nick Pisa, our journalist, comes back and says, you would have thought they had landed some mafia godfather by the way the police were reacting to finding the murders of Meredith Kircher. The lawyers would be handing out statements from friends of Meredith who were starting to point out the strange behavior they saw from Amanda right after the murder. Again, this is all the kissy lovey-dovey stuff that her and Raphael were doing. I guess they were doing like cartwheels and like yoga poses and stuff like that. 
right after they found out about Meredith dying. Again, I don't think you can look too closely at that stuff because they weren't best of friends. She was probably in shock. She probably didn't really believe it yet, right? She never saw her body. No. So, I mean, you hear it, but it doesn't really sink in yet. And sometimes it takes a few days for it to sink in. So I hate that they were looking so closely and holding on to those initial reactions from her. Yeah, she certainly was not pulling a Jodi Arias in the interrogation room or anything that made her look fucking, <laughs> right. you know, guilty Psychopath. as fuck. Psychopath. Right. Next, we have Amanda giving us kind of some insight into what it was like being at the Capane prison. She says that the guards came out and told her that she had some visitors. She was taken to a small office, and there she saw her mom sitting, waiting, and crying. She reached out for her, and Amanda broke down. She said that she felt like a child again. She knew that she had fucked up and felt like she'd fucked up, but didn't know what to do, and that she needed her mom. We hear a prison recording between Etta, Amanda's mom, and herself. And Etta says, quote, The lawyers said something interesting. They said, Amanda's been caught up in something that's way bigger than her because this turned into this huge international bullshit story, end quote. And Amanda's like, are you serious? And Etta says, oh yeah, everybody in the family has been assaulted by the media. It's gone crazy, end quote. And I'm sure at that point, Amanda is not watching TV. She doesn't know what's really going on at all. Can you imagine hearing that from your mom? Like, this is international? International. I, it probably was like, holy shit. Oh, yeah. This is going to be bad. Yeah. This is not going to end well Scary for me. as fuck. Yeah. Our journalist, Nick Pisa, comes back and says that they had so many beautiful pictures of Meredith out there. You know, they had this 20-something blonde American girl. And basically, they kind of wrapped these two up into having, like, this sexual, intriguing story. Yeah. Of course they would. That's all it was about. Because now it looks like this girl-on-girl crime. And if you searched Amanda Knox, you'd come across a picture on MySpace. Oh, MySpace. (laughs) I so wish I could log back. Me too. (laughs) I have so many pictures on there that I would love to get back. Oh, my God. So embarrassing. But continue. I loved mine. (laughs) Mine, I think... I think when mine ended or like when I was no longer on it, it was literally glittering pot leaves all over it. (laughs) Pretty sure. (laughs) So there's a picture that you would find with Amanda and a machine gun laughing hysterically while firing it. First of all, in the picture that he shows, if that's the one he's talking about, the gun is pointed towards the person who is taking the picture. So she's not firing it. No. And laughing hysterically. But... Even so, have you ever shot a gun? They're fucking fun. And it almost looked like it was like a museum type gun. Yes, it looked like, more like a, ha ha look at me, like yeah, kind of a thing. It, it's They, again, they found the picture and they're like, oh, this will make a great story. And I just thought it was juvenile. I don't, I don't think that it meant anything more than Absolutely just not. taking a picture with this. This gun was massive, you guys. Oh, huge. It was humongous. It was on like a tripod. I mean, it didn't even, it literally didn't look real. I'm like, no. I don't know. I, I just thought they were, again, stretching with oh, their yeah. story. Oh, yeah. And he says, you know, once everybody saw this picture, they're like, oh, great. She's this complete and utter nut job. It fits the narrative even more. 
If you typed in Rafael Salicito, you'd find a pic of him dressed up as a mummy with a meat cleaver. And he says this is all just great material to help illustrate the story. What, Halloween's not a fucking thing? I don't get it. I, and we see some of like what the covers of these tabloids were. They were so ridiculous. Outlandish. Like they always are. Like these tabloids are so outlandish. Why do people buy that shit? I don't know. I literally don't understand. Like, I can't, you know what's fake. Yeah. Like, all the shit they're saying is so fucking fake. Like, none of it happened. Maybe, maybe half of the truth is in one of those many lies, right? But it's just, uh, I can't stand to look at it. I know. Well, they go on to say that Raphael supposedly collected knives at the time, that he drove a nice car, which I don't see how that had anything to do with this. No. He was majoring in engineering and was basically extremely inexperienced sexually and had maybe only been with one other person before Amanda, quote, got her hooks into him. There's a news report about the two of them being at some local shop buying underwear for Amanda and talking about having hot sex that night the day before the murder. Okay. And... I don't see why that's even a thing. Oh, why? I, Who why? gives a fuck? Why even bring it up? It doesn't matter because it's, you can't even you can't even actually say if it's true or not. Like even if it is, that doesn't prove anything. And who? Ca- yes, who cares? Again, it's just to They're, make the story really juicy, right. to make people tune in, to make people be like, "Holy shit! How crazy was this girl?" You know, they're just making shit up as they go off uh, on the fly. Well, and then we're seeing a bunch of different headlines calling her La Femme Fatale. And La Dominatrice, like a dominatrix. Yeah. Amanda, the man eater. <laughs> man eater. Okay. And the username that she gave herself on her MySpace page, Foxy Noxy. I mean, if I had a cool name, I would have come up with something like that, too, for my MySpace back in the day. Okay, look at all of our old email addresses. Come on. If they didn't have foxy, cute, sexy, whatever, every single girl had something like that. I did. It's fucking embarrassing. I still use mine as my... (laughs) Yeah. Amy! Mine wasn't cute or sexy or anything but it does allude to me possibly starting random fires places which i've never done oh <laughs> uh, but i mean we've all been there right oh for sure it's what, an immature little thing and at the time when myspace was around everyone did that shit so again i it's just such a reach and i just hate how the tabloids really took over and the media took over with this case and i think that's why it got to the point where it was and why the verdict was the way it was. And all this stuff kind of happened was simply because of the media attention. We see some on-screen text that says three weeks after his arrest, Patrick Lumumba provides an alibi and is released. Giuliano is wondering why did Amanda falsely report him? The only reason would be to steer the investigation away from her. Amanda remembers thinking Giuliano, upon first meeting him, was a very large and solemn man. He kept asking her why she did this. And she would say, I was stressed. I was scared. It was the middle of the night during interrogation. I was innocent. And they kept telling me that I was guilty. Then they're showing her the text message that she must have met up with him. And she didn't remember because it was so traumatizing. In that moment, 
She thought it could have been true. Giuliano comes back saying, usually a person says that's true or that's not true. Amanda had an unusual way of reasoning her choice of words. I hate when he fucking it's talks. It's all about translation. I swear to God, there's no other way to explain why he doesn't understand what the fuck she's saying and why we do. And she kept telling him that she didn't do it. So she was saying that that's not true, but they kept telling her that she was lying. It's like you wanted her to say that she was guilty of doing it. So you kept badgering her and breaking her down and making sure that at some point she agreed to what you wanted her to say. Oh, I hate what he says stuff like that. But I think, again, it probably had a lot to do with what you're talking about. A language barrier, even though she could still speak Italian at one point, they thought that she said to fuck off to them when she didn't. She she didn't say that at all. She she was basically saying she's scared. She doesn't know what the fuck to do about it. But again, they thought it was the other way around. That's when they started smacking her upside the head. It's like, oh, God. I I know. Imagine. This is why I'm not going anywhere. (laughs) And I'm going somewhere in seven weeks. Have fun with that. (laughs) At least in Ireland, they all speak English anyway. Yeah. And if any of our fans from Ireland want to, like, come meet us at a bar in Dublin, we'll be at Dublin for two days. So come meet us. Actually, we'll be in Dublin for, like, four days. So ooh, there you go. Well, and going back to Amanda being kind of frustrated by the questioning, Giuliano just assumed that she didn't like being questioned. She had an attitude. She was hostile, maybe rebellious towards authority and a bit of an anarchist. Have you never met a 20-year-old female? Right. I mean, you have four daughters yourself. And the reason she doesn't like being questioned is because you keep telling her that she's wrong. That is the problem. That is why she's getting frustrated. That's why she's probably getting into this weird mood is because she can't tell you the truth because you don't want to hear the truth. You want to hear her say that she did this crime and give a confession. Like, that's what you're waiting for. And you're not letting her leave until you get that. So I I don't know. I'm just I'm not a fan. I'm not a fan of a lot of these people. (laughs) This documentary. No. Well, Nick Pisa comes back and says that while Amanda was in jail, she was in a cell with two other inmates. He says that during her physical exam, a blood test was taken and they told Amanda that she was HIV positive and that it would develop into AIDS. Can you imagine (sighs) finding out something like that? Already in this situation and then you find out you have fucking HIV. Oh, my God. I know the amount of stress and concern and overwhelming sense of grief almost like that would overwhelm you at that time. I, oh my God, I had to look it up. I had to look it up right after they did said you? that. I'm like, oh, what? You didn't just wait to find I out. I couldn't. I couldn't. I'm You're like that person in a movie that's like, what's next? <laughs> what's it? Do you know what happens? And the person with you is like, I'm watching this along with you. Just doing that with my daughter the other day. Like, <laughs> Stop. I don't know what's happening next. Zip it. But yes, I, I the had apple to look. doesn't fall far. No, no, no. But I had to look. I had to look. So I'm like, are you fucking serious? But they did tell us later on. <laughs> well, in her diary, she begins writing about how she was frightened and had one day at some point in her life wanted a family and had kind of felt like now she couldn't. Her diary goes on to show that she began listing her lovers and noted whether she had used protection with each one of them or not. 
Again, all of this was written in her diary, which coincidentally was leaked to the media. Of course, the producer of the documentary asks Nick Pisa who leaked it and he wouldn't reveal his sources. Of course. But I understand. I wouldn't either if I was a reporter. That's so sad, though. Like, you can't. Come on. For a fucking story, you're going to leak this woman's diary about her whole life. And I mean, it's just, it's sick. It's so sick. It is sick. Again, it comes down to the fucking evilness of money. Like, that's what it comes down to. It's all about fucking money and how much money I can make. And if this story is salacious enough, I'm going to make a lot of money on it. Right. Well, Nick does tell us that it turns out she didn't have HIV and it had all been done as a mind game just to fuck with her by the police and the prosecution. That should be a fucking crime. That's insane. I don't even know what to say to that. Yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Lock all those fucking people up. Lock every one of those police officers up. Fucking Giliano, too. I don't even know why he's still on the force fucking being a pros. I, oh, my God. Just wait till the end. I'm just, I'm so mad. I do not like these people. That is so fucked up. I can't even, I can't. I just can't. Giliano tells us that the knife used in the murder still hadn't been found. So they searched Raphael's apartment and found a knife that matched the characteristics of the murder weapon. Coincidentally, Amanda's DNA was found on the handle, and Meredith's DNA was found on the tip of the blade. Amanda says she has no way of explaining how that was possible. It was impossible. There's also footage of this blood-soaked bra found, and it's missing the clasp in the back. After the clasp was found, there were traces of DNA from Raphael found to be on it. It was a very significant fact in this case, and his colleagues praised him for his efforts. He's really into making sure we all know how good he did. Yes, and how much praise he got from everyone in the community and blah, 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 You blah, are blah. such a good boy, Giliano. God. Now sit and stay. <laughs> I mean, he really thought that this was like the nail in the coffin. Like, this was going to be it. This was DNA evidence. We got him. Sure. We're now in Bari, Italy with Raphael. And he tells us that he had grown up in the southern part of Italy near the sea. And he, again, was very shy. So he didn't really date girls. So when he got with Amanda, he was so incredibly happy to be experiencing this new part of his life. Like, this was a brand new thing for him. and especially as an adolescent boy. I mean, he was a man. He was obviously in his 20s at this point. But if you didn't really experience any of that when you were younger, this is really exciting to this you. This is big. This is like probably the best thing in your whole life. <laughs> now, he goes on to ask, like, why would he want to go and murder someone? This was such a fun experience for him. Why would he want to just abolish all of that and fucking send his ass to prison? Well, like, seriously. It doesn't make sense. I mean, Amanda's cute, but she ain't no, no, you know. No, And all he could think about is how his life is going to be completely destroyed by this forever. We're now three weeks after the murder with Giliano, and he remembers them being nearby Raphael's house when he got the news that the police had proof that Meredith had been killed by three people. Proof. Proof. Okay, yeah. We'll go into we'll go into their proof later on. 
but they had found another male DNA in and around Meredith's body, and they believed it to be Rudy Herman Gooday's DNA. Nick tells us that Rudy was known for breaking and entering homes in Perugia, but by the time they found his DNA, he had already fled the country. Hmm. Weird. Wouldn't that, like, hello, his DNA's there. He's fled the country. They can't find him anymore. It's only been three weeks. Hmm. Weird. I don't know. I don't know. That right there seems a bit a bit weird. Well, they do end up tracking down one of his friends who agreed to be a police informant and get on a Skype call with Rudy. We hear Rudy's conversation with this informant. Rudy states, and I quote, The girl who's been killed, I met her the previous evening. The next day, I went to her house, but we didn't do anything because neither of us had a condom. And so I went to the bathroom. After that, I heard screaming and I quickly came out of the bathroom. I saw this guy. I didn't see his face because it was dark. Then he ran out the front door. I saw Meredith, who was bleeding. She had a cut on her throat. She was clinging on me strongly. I got scared. I was completely covered with blood. Fuck, I'm scared. I'll kill myself. Weird quote. Why would you kill yourself for being scared? Okay, this is like... (laughs) Okay. Now, that was all in Italian, by the way. Yes, this was all in Italian. And why would a random guy come and kill her, run out of the house, he doesn't see who it is, while Rudy's in the bathroom taking a shit? Right. It is so far-fetched. This dude is fucking guilty. Like, well, and he mentioned that they didn't have a condom, but yet male DNA was found inside of her. Right. His DNA. Now we see a text message come up from Rudy that states, just one thing, Amanda had nothing to do with this. She wasn't there. Mic drop. (laughs) Seriously. Seriously. Giliano tells us that an international warrant was issued for the arrest of Rudy and he was captured. We meet Walter Biscotti, who was Rudy Gade's attorney. And he says that Rudy has always maintained he never killed anyone, but a good lawyer should understand that a judge may not believe their client. Rudy was in Meredith's house. That's undeniable. His DNA was everywhere. They actually showed us this picture I think there was like 10 spots where they found his DNA in her room. Okay. Just keep that little nugget in the back of your head because we'll get back to that when we find some other DNA matches. There's about 10 of good days in her room. Walter goes on to say that if they had put all three of them on trial together, Rudy would have ended up getting blamed for everything since his DNA was all over the place. He decided to do a fast track trial for him. Nick says that when Rudy's trial begins, there is an interesting revelation. Rudy initially said that Amanda had nothing to do with it when he had that conversation with his friend, but now he's changing his tune. Go figure. To save his own fucking ass. Right? Rudy, in court, says, and I quote, through the window, I saw the silhouette of Amanda Knox leaving the house. End quote. A, how the fuck could you... Properly identify somebody in the dark by a silhouette. First thing I wanted to ask. You said silhouette. That means you're only seeing the outline, the black outline of a person. Yep. You can't see detail. Sometimes you don't even know if it's male or female depending on the height. If she had her hair up in a ponytail, she would have looked like a bald man. Seriously. I... (laughs) 
<laughs> right there, you know he's lying. He said the word silhouette. He's already a known criminal. Yes, come on. Come on, you guys. And he's using words he cannot spell. (laughs) We get some on-screen text that says Rudy Gaudet is found guilty and sentenced to 30 years in prison for his part in the murder. On appeal, Gaudet's sentence is reduced to 16 years. Nick explains they covered his trial and sentencing, but the media didn't really give a shit about Rudy and his role in the murder. Shouldn't you give a little bit more shit about someone's story whose DNA is all over the damn place and his DNA is inside the dead girl's body. He wasn't interesting enough. Shouldn't we be a little bit more concerned about that? Oh my, this is what fucking makes me mad. Oh yeah, this one's annoying. This makes me so pissed. Like, people are more into the salacious sex demonic, that whatever the fuck. That had nothing to do with anything. No. They didn't find female DNA inside of no. her. No, it is. Oh my God, it makes me so mad. Yeah. We're now one and a half years after the murder, and this is called the trial of the decade in Italy. Giuliano thought the trial would be easy. They had DNA proof, but they also had the testimony from Meredith's friends, claiming that the two girls were polar opposite. Amanda was a sex-crazed girl while Meredith was afraid of Amanda's sex toys. What the fuck? What does this have anything to do with her death? I don't get this. People are allowed to have sex. And, and they're allowed to have toys with whoever they want. Like, why does this have anything to do with this girl's murder? I literally can't understand this. No, I don't get it either. So what if they weren't best friends? They don't need to be. They haven't even known each other that long. So I mean, they don't right. even have enough time to become best friends. Right. Right. Now, here is Giliano's idea of the events that happened that night. Meredith comes home to find Amanda, Raphael, and Rudy, and she's just had enough and scolds Amanda for bringing these two guys over to their house. Uh Uh-huh. I see that happening. Sure. Amanda, feeling humiliated by Meredith calling her out, decided to show her and brutally attack her with a knife and slit her throat. He truly thought that Rudy and Raphael were trying to indulge Amanda in every possible way that night, pleasure at any cost. Oh, my God. These stories don't even sound believable. If you're actually going to make up a story, make it sound like it could actually fucking happen. Because this shit is complete bullshit. Oh, it's ridiculous. All of the headlines literally make her out to be this demonic, Satan-worshipping witch of a woman who is obsessed with sex and will basically, like, cast the spell upon the men that she's around to kill people. Right. In some kind of, like, ritual. I... I, I literally don't even know how he spun this story to the jury. How did they believe something like that? It is so outlandish. Amanda and Raphael didn't even know Rudy, but they can't explain Rudy's DNA and Meredith. They can't talk about that? No. That's too easy. Oh, my God. We're now two years after the murder, and it's verdict day. Giliano says that he realizes that asking for the conviction of two young people can cost a lot. He felt that there was no doubt about the guilt of Amanda and Raphael. I firmly disagree with that. I firmly disagree with almost every goddamn sentence he says. Giliano, canceled. (laughs) Shut down. With all of the craze around this trial, the judge actually kicks all of the reporters and cameras out of the courtroom. So we see this like 
photo or video of all of them crowded together outside waiting very impatiently for some news on what is going to be happening. We hear from a court recording. The judge says, given articles 533 and 535 of the Penal Proceedings Code, we declare Amanda Marie Knox and Rafael Salicito guilty of the crimes charged. They are convicted to a sentence of 26 years in prison for Knox and a sentence of 25 years for Solicito. Massive amounts of people crowded outside in the streets were just, I mean, in an uproar. It's interesting, though. They don't have life. They didn't say 26 years to life or 25 years to life in prison. Like, that's all they get. Right. So it's very different than... Than us. Than, yeah, than the American correctional system. Yeah. We see Amanda being led out to a black van and taken away. The Knox family is simply floored at the guilty verdict. Meredith's family feels some justice was served in her death. Giuliano talks about how he has strangers walking up to him in the street, shaking his hand, and he's just eating it all up. I cannot stand how much he talks about himself. It is driving me through the roof. As a Catholic, he sure has a lot of pride in what he does. (laughs) Yes, he does. He is obsessed with himself. He truly is. Yes. I don't think I've ever seen anyone on a documentary talk so much about themselves, like how well they did. And they are just the best prosecutor ever. And they're just the greatest. And so many people, you know, think of him as like a prophet. And I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, This is how you think of yourself. I don't know if this is how others think of you. (laughs) No, no. Amanda says that now she suddenly found herself tossed into this dark place. She's scared. She's alone. And she does say that she had thought about suicide. She sat there thinking about how she would not be coming home until she was in her 50s. And it was hard to come to terms with the fact that some of her family members may not even be alive when she finally got out. Raphael tells us that he actually spent almost six months in solitary confinement. That's a long fucking time to be alone. And that can really mess someone up mentally. Yeah. No human contact for that long? I cannot imagine. No, no. He says that he was getting very depressed. He thought about Amanda and her upcoming birthday while they had been in jail and how he still had feelings for her. Mind you, again, they had only been together for like five days before all of this happened. Right. That is so crazy. But Amanda had made it very clear that she did not have the same feelings back for him. So they must have some type of maybe male discourse back and forth. Well, and I don't blame her because he did lie to police. Right. uh, And go against her. Like, I would be fucking pissed, too. I'd be like, screw you, dude. Like, you were trying to, like, throw me under the bus and let me do the time by myself when neither of us did that. And you know that. Yes, and you know it. Yeah. We're now three years after the murder. This is when Amanda and Raphael's appeal trial begins. We hear a news reporter, and I'm very much paraphrasing this, but he talks about how Amanda's walking into the courtroom looking pale 
and skinnier than they'd seen in the past. And he says something to the effect of how maybe she could use some hair and makeup, but that he guesses that they just don't get that in jail. And I was like, what? These fucking What a fucking thing to say. Like, is this how all people in Italy talk? Like, I doubt it. Do we have any Italian listeners? And if we do, please, please tell me that not everyone in Italy is like this because these people are goddamn trash. I was just like... Wow, she's been in prison. Uh, they're so But God forbid rude. she hasn't had her hair done. Oh my God. I it's it, horrible. It was beyond me. Why uh, clearly, clearly, she's no Pearl Fernandez. <laughs> sneaking Pearl. all of her damn makeup into the cell. <laughs> Looking like a damn clown. Looking like a clown. And getting pissed that her nails just got done and they might get broken. Right. Amanda delivers a tear-filled declaration of innocence to the court. She says, and I quote, I never expected to find myself here, convicted of a crime I didn't commit. To Meredith's family, I am very sorry that Meredith isn't here anymore. I can't possibly know how you feel, but I too have little sisters. And the idea of their suffering and never seeing them again terrifies me, end quote. The appeals court allows the independent review of the crucial DNA evidence that we were talking about earlier to be done by an outside expert. So we're talking about the DNA that was found on that knife, which would have been Amanda's on the handle, Meredith's on the tip of the blade, and the DNA found on that bra clasp pointing directly to Raphael. Right. We're now in Rome, Italy, and we meet Dr. Stefano Conti. He's an independent forensic expert. He says it's really easy to leave behind DNA traces. He said even just moving your hand on your arm, so like rub your hand against your arm, there's a very fine dust that will come off, and that is DNA, and it's spread everywhere. Right. Right? So it could be literally all over the place. Right. I remember thinking when I cut hair how much I would be fucked if I was ever in a situation where I was possibly being looked at for like a murder. Right. Because I had so many traces of other random people's DNA (laughs) all over my bedroom. All over. All over. I mean, it gets stuck in your clothes. It's in your it's in everything. It gets stuck in a lot of other places, too, Kenzie. I don't miss that. I do not. I don't miss it either. (laughs) When I had to pull <gasps> someone's hair from between my teeth. <gasps> oh, Because God. it was literally yes. working its way into my gum. Oh, I God. was like, are you shitting me? Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, it's so gross. Had it happen to me too. Yeah. Dr. Conti goes on to say that a crime scene must be kept completely sterile, which did not happen in this case. He said in the police video, you can clearly see people coming and going without protective suits on. Their booties that they put on over their shoes were not changed, and rarely did any of them change their gloves. So basically, they could touch something and transfer that DNA over to the next thing they touch. Right. We next meet Dr. Carla Vecchiati. She's also another independent forensic expert, and she says that contamination was one of the issues raised by the court. No shit. No one had protective gear on. No one was changing their gloves. Like, come on. Everyone's DNA is getting everywhere. Yeah. 
And the bra clasp had been found under a rug 46 days after the murder occurred. Why does this all just scream amateur hour? Seriously, what are they doing over there? I don't think they know what they're doing, to be completely honest. No. (gasps) Maybe they're like, maybe this is like the equivalent of the Beverly Hills cops from the Menendez (laughs) murders. That is it. It's the same people. Yeah. (laughs) Dr. Conti says that after 46 days, it's extremely possible that other people could have left their DNA at the scene. Dr. Vecchiati goes on to tell us that on the bra clasp, they actually found Raphael's DNA along with at least two other male DNA profiles. Police never noted that as evidence. Weird. Why wouldn't they say that? Right? It's, it doesn't add up to their storyline. No. That because they I, want and create it. Well, because I think they're also trying to create this storyline that maybe Meredith was this like virginal character in right. the story. No. No, I'm sorry. I, and right, that right there should be cause for dismissal of yes, the whole thing. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that is very bad police work. Come on. And shady police work. That's what it is. It's shady. There was also problems with contaminations in the lab where the evidence was being looked at. They, go figure. It's, there's just issues in every single corner and facet of all of this. Trust the science. <sighs> Jesus. Now, looking at the knife, you could definitely say that Amanda's DNA was on that knife. But when it came to Meredith's on the blade, it was such a scarce amount that the likelihood of contamination was really, really high. Right. They even asked the forensic police if they had examined the knife alone without any other evidence. And they told her no, that they had examined it with 50 other samples linked to Meredith at the same exact time. Hello, cross-contamination. Give me a break. Those items could have been on the same damn table and just, like, been switched by each other and just a scarce amount of her DNA could have gotten on there, and that's the only reason it was there. Why was such a small amount on the blade if it cut open her whole entire neck? Right. Are you kidding? I know. This is just screaming fucked up. For sure. This is not looking good for the Italian police. No. Nick explains that when all of this information was leaked to the press, it was just chaos. This botched investigation and botched forensic work. Walter Biscotti, again, he was Rudy Gaudet's attorney, said it really bothered him how the American media had so much to say about the laws in Italy. And he even made reference to that in 1308, they had their first faculty of law in Europe. But in America, at the same time, we were still drawing on cave walls. I wrote shots fired, Biscotti. I know he's pissed. (laughs) I mean, you're named after a cookie that you dip in coffee. (laughs) That aren't very good. No, they're gross. (laughs) They're stale breaded cookies. Giuliano tells us that he was irritated by all the attacks coming his way. The American media was only (laughs) focused on DNA. Shouldn't we be only focused on DNA? No. He sounds like such an idiot when he talks. I'm like, that is like the nail in the coffin is DNA. Like you stated before, it was DNA that you knew that you had that in the bag. Yeah. Was when you had the DNA. And now you're like, well, why are they only focusing on the DNA? Uh, Shouldn't they? Giuliano, (laughs) your country has been practicing law since 1308. Get with the fucking program. (laughs) Amanda... 
tells us that there was no DNA evidence of Amanda's in Meredith's room. Reminder, she lived there with her and there still wasn't any DNA evidence. Shouldn't that explain something? Oh, and she supposedly was the one that attacked her with the knife? And slit her throat, but there's slit her no throat. DNA of her in there? No, no. She was wearing protective gear. <laughs> she was wearing the suit and the gloves and her DNA got nowhere. Yes. And no one saw that happen. Nobody saw it happen. Raphael's DNA trace wasn't reliable because of how small it was on that bra clasp. Again, could have been due to cross-contamination. She poses the question, what makes more sense? Her telling her boyfriend and this random guy to rape her roommate and after let me stab her to death or that this random guy, Rudy, who frequently commits burglaries, broke into Amanda and Meredith's home, took advantage of Meredith when he found her, killed her, and then ran away. Seriously. The first story is, it's almost like comical. Like, it's almost like something like that would never fucking happen. Things do not happen that way. No. Rudy's story, that's what fucking happened. That is exactly what happened to Meredith. And here's the other thing. It'd be one thing if Amanda and Raphael were known to, you know, smoke bath salts and then potentially (laughs) rape and kill her roommate. They were potheads. Do you know what potheads do? They smoke pot, they eat snacks, they go to sleep. That's about it. There is no energy for murder. No. (laughs) Well, and of course, Giliano, when he heard about it being Rudy and only Rudy, he says he doesn't think it's fair to only look at it that way. No. Honestly, what is wrong with this guy? Does he not, does he honestly just not want to be wrong? Is that where this is coming from? Truly, that's exactly where I, where I kept landing. Like he, he just, because what he says just doesn't make sense. His story is not plausible and would never fucking happen. Rudy's story makes fucking sense. You already charged Rudy. Just take the win. Right. He's he's already in prison. Take the fucking win and don't look like a jackass and keep saying that you still think it's Amanda and Raphael when it's clearly not. Yeah. Four years after the murder, prosecution's closing argument. Quote, the decision is yours to try to bring justice and defend the honor of this country, which is a sovereign state, end quote, given to us from Giuliano. Of course Mimini. it was. Of course it was. Outside of the courthouse, the world awaited a verdict. Journalists were there from all over the world. And we hear, quote, in the name of the Italian people, in review of the first trial verdict, this court of appeals absolves the two defendants because they did not commit the crime and orders the immediate release of Amanda Knox and Rafael Solicito, end quote. And we get Amanda sobbing and falling into the arms of her lawyer. And Giuliano is pissed. Oh, yes. I love it. Uh, Me too, me too. (laughs) Unfortunately, though, outside of the courthouse, there was great disappointment coming from the crowd because all of them felt that Amanda should have been found guilty because, again... They had been fed this insane story about who she was. We see a clip of Amanda and her family flying home, landing in Tacoma, Washington, on her way to Seattle. Amanda gets off the plane and says in a sort of press conference, quote, It's important to me to say thank you to everyone who's believed in me, who has defended me, who has supported my family. 
My family's the most important thing to me right now, and I just want to go and be with them. So thank you for being there for me. End quote. Raphael explained that he was very joyful to be free, but also dramatically depressed because now everything was new. He had to start over after spending four years in prison, six months of that in solitary confinement. He had been this simple computer guy, and now everyone knew who he was. Yeah, I think readjusting to life after prison is really tough for people. I, You live one way for so long, for years. Yeah. It's really hard to like come out and rebuild. Well, I think it's even more so when it's such an international story. Yes, and everyone knows who you are. can recognize you. Oh. If you're just some, you know, Joe Schmo, where you can walk, you can go to the grocery store and nobody's going to know who you yeah. are yeah. and what you did or what you didn't do, you know, and what you've lived through. But these two people had their entire yeah. lives splashed across front pages all over. Yeah. Amanda says that she really thought that she was going to be okay but she wasn't the same person to come back to Seattle. She said that the whole world now knew of every sexual partner she'd had, which were seven men, and now she was some heinous, sex-obsessed whore to everybody. I'm sorry, seven men is not that many. It's fine. No, and everyone thought that they knew her personally. Oh, yeah. You know, like everyone, like, Kyoto was like, oh, I know you. And she's like, no, the fuck you don't. You don't fucking know me. You do not know me. Don't pretend to know me just because you saw me in tabloids. Right. And with all these fucking lies posted above my picture. Right. She says that she couldn't even go to the grocery store without being recognized. And she always wondered, what was it that people really cared about? Was it just the entertainment factor of the entire situation? We get some on-screen text that says six years after the murder, an Italian court throws out Knox and Solicito's acquittal and the pair are found guilty again. The guilty verdict focuses on circumstantial evidence this time, including Knox's behavior and her relationships. And the new guilty verdict is appealed to Italy's Supreme Court. So eight years after the murder of Meredith Kircher, we now get a final verdict. There are cameras camped outside of Knox's family home in Washington. Meredith Kircher's family made it clear that they are convinced of Amanda's guilt and they want to see her imprisoned in Italy. All phones had to be turned off inside the courtroom until after the judges finished reading the verdict. And both Amanda and Raphael were finally exonerated. We see clips of Amanda jumping up and down, cheering. I mean, this has got to be like a fucking nightmare at this point. Well, and now she knows it's over for it's good. It's done. Like, it can't be brought back up again. She can't be charged with it again. Like, she's been exonerated. It's done and over with. No more. And can you imagine that sense of, like... Relief. All of that, like, the world on your shoulders type feeling is finally gone. And you finally have maybe some sort of peace. Right. And, like, you can finally relax. Yeah. I... Man, that's a long time. Yeah, Eight I don't years? ever want to feel like no, that. No, no. We also see her calling Raphael and, you know, being very excited about how they're both free now. Of course, all of it in Italian. We see some more on-screen text that says, In September of 2015, the Italian Supreme Court releases its reasoning for acquitting Knox and Solicito of the murder. The court blames stunning flaws in the investigation and increased media attention for creating a frantic search for guilty parties. 
the justices find a complete lack of biological traces connecting Knox and Solicito to the crime. The court and evidence still points to the guilt of Rudy Gaudet. We do get to hear a little bit from Arlene Kircher, Meredith's mom. She says that she was very surprised as they had had two convictions and two acquittals and that it was a very strange verdict to come to after eight years. Well, yeah, because the whole thing was strange. Well, because they got they were guilty twice and acquitted twice and as they should have never been found guilty. I know. It should have never gotten that far. I mean, I hope Arlene gets and feels a sense of Rudy did this. He's still in prison, yeah. right? Like he's still serving his sentence. Someone is paying for the death of my daughter. Right. You know, I'm I'm hoping she feels that way, but I don't know. I think she's still skeptical. I think she's still on the fence about if they're actually guilty or, or not. I mean, I would hope that she would look at the evidence. Right. Right. Because the facts can't lie. Right. And right? DNA evidence, there's so much contamination. Like, I really, really hope she has some sense of peace knowing that someone is paying for the death of her daughter. Agreed. Nick Pisa comes back on and says that the police and the prosecution were to blame for the errors and the fixation on some of the wild theories that they had going on. He says that he doesn't buy the trial by media opinion because, of course, he is part of the media. Right. But he says that looking back, some of the information was crazy and completely made up. I mean, I was looking at some of the headlines that were flashing across the screen at the time. (laughs) And at one point, they claimed that there could have been six killers. You know, they pointed to this being a ritual killing. They also (sighs) mentioned Meredith as being like a victim of a voodoo ritual, that this was a sex attack, and that, you know, the dead girl feared Noxie's sex toy. I mean, all of these are just incredibly ridiculous. They are. They don't. How do people believe this? Like, but again, it's like these fucking National Enquirer type of tabloids. Right. That they they'll literally pull something out of their ass and put it on the front front page. Oh, yeah. There as is long no as they're selling. Sources. No, yeah. as long as they're selling magazines, they do not care what they actually put and or if it's true or not. Most of the time I could bet 95% of the time the shit you see in there is a fucking lie. Oh, I agree with Not you. Not even close to the fucking truth. They probably saw like a, a slight text message and yep. fucking wrapped it into whatever the hell they wanted it to be. You yep. know, <laughs> like they took the words and spun with it and did whatever they want. So it's like, you can't trust that shit. No. Giliano comes back on and says that he admits that he has made some mistakes. He says that all people are between good and evil, and it's just human nature to be that way. He says that if Amanda and Raphael are innocent, he hopes they can forget the suffering that they've endured. I don't think you're ever going to fucking forget that. It's a bit traumatizing. (laughs) No. But he says that if they're guilty, that he knows that life ends with a final trial. A trial with no appeals, no second chances, and no revisions. Amanda says that she thinks that people are monsters and that we want to see them if we have a chance to. She says that we want the reassurance of knowing who the bad people are and that it's not us. And she closes out this documentary with saying, we're all afraid and fear makes people crazy. We end this officially with some on-screen text saying Amanda Knox graduated college in 2014. She now advocates for the wrongfully convicted. 
Rafael Solicito runs his own internet company in Bari, Italy. He also serves as a true crime expert for Italian television. Giuliano Magnini has been promoted to general prosecutor. Nick Pisa still works in journalism. And Rudy Gaudet was recently granted day release from prison. He maintains his innocence. And that's how we end. Why, first of all, is Rudy granted day release from prison? Shouldn't be. Nope. And why was Giuliano promoted? Shouldn't be. He sucks. He sucks. Yep. Well, you know, I guess I really didn't know all of the ins and outs of this story, but I 1 million percent believe that both Amanda and Raphael are innocent. Agreed. The amount of mistakes that were made is unbelievable. Thank God they were acquitted. Can you imagine the hell that would have rained down on the Italian court system if they would have had to go back to prison? Really? (laughs) I know. America would be all over that shit. I mean, seriously, like, (laughs) I just think to that movie Team America where they're like, America, fuck yeah. (laughs) I'm just like, why? Why? I know. I know. I can't believe it went that far. No, I know. And for that long. I had no idea it went on for eight years. No, no. And that's... Thank God it's over. Thank God it's over. They get to move on with their lives and actually have lives, which is fantastic. Right. Thanks so much for listening and downloading another episode of Sheer Crime. You guys are the best and we love you so much. Next, we'll be covering the Netflix documentary Tread, which showcases the downward spiral of the man who created a bulldozer in secret for the purpose of destroying his hometown. My brother mentioned this one to me and said we should do it, and I've never seen it. Oh, this shit is crazy. Yeah, he said it was riveting. It's almost unbelievable. Like, I did see it probably a year ago, Yeah, and I was completely stunned, like, how something like this could actually happen. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I'm not surprised by a lot anymore. I know. But but I'm excited to see this And this is so different than what we're used to. Right. This is very, very different. Right. If you want to follow us on social media, you can find us in our Facebook group, Share Crime Podcast Discussion Group. We're on Instagram at share underscore crime underscore podcast, Twitter at Share Crime Pod, and TikTok at Share Crime Podcast. Any future episode requests can be sent to our personal inbox, requests at sharecrimepodcast.com. Stay safe, stay sane, and remember, never run with scissors. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye.